Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Saturday, June 25th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melkier. Taking a look at this weekend's waiver wire targets. Lots of players to think about, of course. Last weekend, there was a flurry of activity after we recorded early Friday. And, well, maybe we'll catch a few more players that were promoted recently on this episode as a result of going Saturday instead of Friday. Most weeks, live at 4 o'clock Eastern on Friday. Schedule, of course, not written in ink, very much written in pencil. As we do every single week, we're going to begin with some bats to consider. We'll kind of start on the more shadow league side and work our way into some deeper leagues. And Al, there were a handful of leagues. I have my Thursday night pickups league that I've talked about on this show a few times. Franmil Reyes was available. That's a 16-team league, so a pretty deep league where he was actually on the wire. I would expect him to be more available in 10s and maybe a few 12s that are out there as a result of his slow start to the season and then the time he missed on the injured list. The projections still look pretty good. He's over a 340 Woba for his rest of season projection, according to the Bat X, which would put him in the mix for shallow leagues if he hits that projection. Do you think he comes through and bounces back from this slow start and makes for a good shallow league pickup right now? I think that if you are in a league where you have that roster space at, at all, uh, especially 12 teams and up, and Reyes is available. Uh, I think it's worth the shot. I think, you know, I don't know. I-, I can't say with a ton of certainty if he's going to uh, play the way that he projects to because it-, it was a little puzzling as to why there were so many strikeouts earlier. But um, the longer term track record certainly does suggest that he's going to be a-, a bat that you want in your 12 teamers. And yeah, if he's available anywhere else, he is an absolute must add. Let me go off script less than two minutes into the podcast. I'm just curious, do you often or ever use the rolling graphs on fan graphs when you're looking at players, uh, especially from a multi-year view? You know, rarely. And that's that's an error on my part because I will see our, our friends and colleagues on Twitter sometimes display these rolling graphs. And it's like, oh, that's some, that's some really good insight there. Uh, that's, a, that's a good perspective. So it's, something, it's a tool I really should use much more than I do. Yeah, no, I'm, I wish I used it more than I do, but I have started using them a bit more this season. And I think one of the reasons why was the early struggles of Fran Mil Reyes. And I know our, our friend John Legeza, who's been a guest on the Thursday episodes of this show before, uh, he's very into this as a way of analyzing players. He's written about it on The Athletic as well. And you look at a multi-year view with like a 15-game rolling average. You can look at different things. You can look at strikeout rate or you can look at WOBA if you're looking for like a catch-all offensive performance metric. And you get a better sense of how low a low really is and how high a high really is when you pull back from a multi-year view. And what was happening with Fran Mil Reyes at the beginning of this season, his rolling WOBA for a 15-game average was an all-time low for the last three years. It was that bad. So he had a historically bad run earlier this year. The strikeout rate's still pretty high for the season, but there's so much raw power there that even if the strikeout rate remains high, he's the kind of player that when he connects, he does damage. They need power in that lineup. They do a really good job as a group putting a lot of balls in play and not striking out much. Part of that's the types of players they've got. Having a Stephen Kwan certainly helps, but having a Fran Mil Reyes in the middle of the order to offset that and to take advantage of the likes of Straw and Kwan and obviously Jose Ramirez, I think there's going to be a lot of run and RBI opportunities, especially for Fran Mil Reyes. So I think even if you want to look at him as a batting average risk, he does make sense in some of those more shallow leagues where he might still be bouncing around on the wire. And if you want to look at rolling graphs, I highly suggest you do that over at Fangraphs. Just hit that graphs tab, click the buy game button, and usually a 15 game Rolling average is a good way to go for most stats. You'll see those peaks and valleys really pop on the screen. Let's get to a few more players, though, that are interesting for at least Shadow League where available. And this is a similar skill set, I think, in the next player we're going to talk about. Luke Voigt, still out there in some 10 and 12 team leagues. Really seems like he has turned things around after a rough start to his time in San Diego. Yeah, it's just a matter of waiting for Voigt to to click because we've seen again, sort of like with race, we've seen over the years that he could be a really good power source, a very good run producer and um, having a very nice month so far. Playing time's not an issue. There were, there were a few points earlier on in April and May where the playing time was also a little bit questionable for Voigt, but yeah, right now he's the hitting like the, the player that you probably imagined back in March and uh, definitely needs to be rostered in 12 teamers where he is surprisingly available still. Do you have a preference between Voigt and Reyes in a situation where both might be available? Uh, 
I would say Reyes, I, I hesitated and want to qualify that a little bit because I do think that Voight's got a higher batting average upside. So if you've got particular categorical needs that maybe Voight would be preferable if you were doing better for home runs, but needed the the, the reassurance uh, uh, in, um, in batting average. But in general, I would definitely prefer Reyes. Just I think a lot more raw, a lot more raw power there. I think you're looking at pretty comparable team context as well, especially when yeah. you consider that a healthy Manny Machado should be back in the Padres lineup soon, maybe by the end of this weekend. Maybe by the time you hear this podcast, he will have returned. But then also, Fernando Tatis Jr. is not far away. That Padres offense could end up being a top 10 group pretty consistently throughout the second half. That would bode very well for Luke Voigt as well, having a prominent role in all of that. Uh, Tommy Pham still out there in some shallow leagues. He's a player the projections consistently like that the fantasy baseball community likes a little bit less in terms of roster rates. Again, we're talking more shallow leagues here. Maybe a guy that gets traded at some point between now and the July 31st trade deadline um, probably won't be traded to the Giants. So you can rule out Oracle Park as a, a likely destination for Tommy Pham, given the um, beef, we'll call it, with uh, Jock Peterson. Let's look at Fam though, just from the, the current view of what does he bring to the table at this stage of his career? Is he still that touch-all-categories type of player that he was at his peak a few seasons ago? I think not so much with stolen bases, although he has a couple in June so far. Uh, so if you've had him this month, he's given you a little bit there. But uh, he's pretty much always been uh, somebody who gets on base. So you figure if you're in an OBP or points league that Fam is somebody who's going to uh, help you probably more consistently than in a standard roto league. But other than the steals, he's really given you pretty much everything so far this month, the 280 batting average, five home runs, I think, and I'm doing this for memory. So I hope I'm not wrong. I think four of the five have been at home, uh, 16 runs and 12 RBI. So that's pretty nice across the board production for, for three and a half weeks, basically. And I think the thing with Fam, you you mentioned the possibility that he gets traded. I think that's really relevant for him because I think that he doesn't have the power of uh, Reyes or Voigt, as we were talking about just a moment ago. So I think that he does rely on the home park a bit to boost those numbers. But get batting average, OBP, run production. I think wherever he winds up, as long as it's a, an everyday role, he will continue to uh, to produce that. Yeah, I think less swing and miss than both of those mashers we talked about a little bit earlier. And I think the, the tricky thing with Pham is that we saw from 2017 to 2019, he hit over 270 in each of those seasons, even hit 306 for that final year on a full year with the Cardinals. Uh, I think there is still power and speed at the very least. Even if he's no longer someone who's above average in batting average, he seems unlikely to hurt you in that category, even though he did, in fact, hurt you in that category a season ago. It still doesn't swing at a ton of pitches outside the zone. Makes enough contact, draws plenty of walks, of course, gets a lift in OBP leagues. Might not be available in any OBP leagues, but certainly out there in at least a few leagues uh, that are looking at average and, and probably a, like the 10-team variety, similar to those other players we talked about. Jaron Duran is a player that I feel like I've missed out on in some of my deeper leagues, 15-team leagues especially. I think he gets scooped up right away when got that opportunity to come back up for the Red Sox. I think the question with Duran is, how much do you push it? You know, there's going to be a series that he's going to miss in Toronto to begin this week. So lost playing time this week at an inopportune time. He comes up, starts playing really well. He's going to miss a series. He has speed and he's getting chances to lead off. So how do you see this playing out with Duran and the Red Sox, considering that they could easily put him in the outfield uh, on a regular basis and just play Jackie Bradley Jr. less? Well, you know, that's a, a hope uh, in fantasy that we've had, which I feel sort of bad saying because, uh, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. is actually uh, of late playing pretty well and always useful defensively. But we had uh, Jen McCaffrey on the Thursday show not too long ago, I say two, three weeks ago, and brought up this question with her. And she indicated that the, the team was really happy with the role that they had for Jackie Bradley Jr. So for those of us who've been stashing Durant, that wasn't very encouraging. So I'm, I'm really pessimistic here. Uh, so he's not going to play in this series in Toronto this week. Um, and then Enrique Hernandez probably, or at least could be back at some point this week. And I, once that happens, I'm just not optimistic about the playing time, playing time for Duran. And I, I worry about him being optioned just altogether. So 
I think if he is still available in those types of leagues, DVR, where you say that you've already missed out on him, he is he is here and there in the 14-15 team leagues. If you're fortunate enough to have that situation, I think that you stash Duran if you're able to, because there is still a lot of season left. So I think that that opportunity may come. But if you really are looking to get help from him in the short term, I think I'd be looking elsewhere. This is a player that seems like he's really mastered triple a too. going back to last season more than 30 percent above league average each of the last two seasons showing power showing speed he had the power breakout at the alternate site which is probably the first thing most people think of when they think of jaron duran oh yeah he added power that year that there wasn't a minor league season showing a, a bit over a long haul of upper level minor league games now that that's real he's got 22 home runs over the last two seasons combined at triple a he's not a pcl guy either He's on the International League circuit or the former International League circuit. I know they renamed the PCL the PCL again. I don't know if they did that for the International League. We'll uh, we'll check and discuss <laughs> at a later date. C.J. Abrams also up, and I think part of what would draw you to Duran might also draw you to Abrams if you're looking for speed especially. I talked about C.J. Abrams a little bit with Keith Law on the Athletic Baseball show that went up on Friday. And I think what I'm expecting for Abrams is speed first, Batting average later, some runs in RBIs, but probably not a lot because he's likely to be more in the bottom part of the order. And then the power is going to come last. I'm not expecting pop from C.J. Abrams this season, maybe not even for most of next season, because he's so young and still relatively like slight of frame. Right? I think he could still add a lot of strength in these next couple of seasons. We also didn't see a lot of hard hit balls during his first run with the Padres. Doesn't mean he won't square the ball up more consistently you know, the rest of this season and, and in between now and when more of that power develops. But I look at him as more of a fringy 12-team middle infielder for speed right now than a must-add sort of player in shallow leagues, even though I think we're talking about someone who could be a future early rounder in fantasy baseball. Yeah, we're very much on the same page there, DVR. In the uh, in the waiver column this week, I did include Abrams. Mostly recommended him as a deeper league player where he's available, but did say that he's worth a, a nominal bid uh, in fab in 12-teamers just, just to stash for that stolen base potential. But I mean, when I say nominal, like between 0 and 1% of fab. So I would, would not go any higher than that. Yeah, again, for shallow leagues, be careful. Deeper leagues, maybe you can spend a little bit more, but he needs to hit to carve out a regular role. I think there's still probably more of a platoon sort of usage coming for C.J. Abrams, playing almost exclusively against righties and likely getting a lot of days off when the Padres are facing lefties. Let's talk about Isak Paredes because I always want to talk about Paredes, but (laughs) he's actually playing a good bit for the Rays right now. Not an everyday guy. You go back to, I think, June 14th now. Last 10 games, he has started seven of them for the Rays. So that almost immediately pushes him more into the 15-team league conversation. A three-homer game earlier this week against the Yankees has probably put him on the radar of a few people that hadn't previously noticed that he had a role in Tampa Bay. Are you buying in? He's starting to creep up in the order on occasion. We've seen him hit as high as second earlier this week. He's hit fifth a couple of times recently. Do you think Paredes is enough of a part of the Rays' plan where mixed league players can consistently rely on him? I think so, although when we're talking mixed league, I would lean more towards the 15-team variety. I would not be looking to add Paredes. At this point, my 12-teamers, maybe just put him on the watch list, but the the power that he's showing is intriguing and frankly a little surprising. And I think that there's got to be room for him to raise that average a little bit. Uh, Not that that would really be saying a lot, but uh, the playing time is critical here. And I think that that plus the power and plus the the line of context, uh, Grant, the Rays are not hitting great right now, but there's the potential for him to produce some runs. And uh, I think all that makes him somebody that, that absolutely needs to be rostered in deeper mixed leagues. Paredes has nine homers in 99 plate appearances entering play on Saturday, more power than, than I would have expected, even throughout the three homer game. I mean, six, Six homers and and fewer than 100 plate appearances would be surprising to me. He's also got a 149 BABIP, which, as many people (laughs) know, is weirdly low. He's hitting the ball harder than he's hit it in previous stints in the big leagues. It's a small enough sample where you can't look at that and say he's figured it out, but I think it's encouraging nonetheless. And I think paired with that lower BABIP, I think you start to realize the average is likely to come up maybe in that 250-260 range, possibly higher if he continues to hit the ball hard as he's hitting it. But I, I think he's 
at least the kind of player. It's not going to hurt you in that category. He doesn't strike out a lot. Takes pretty good at bats. Actually draws some walks too. And because the Rays will get healthier in the weeks ahead, I think those counting stats might come out a little bit better than you would expect for Paredes as well. So I, I feel good because I, I believed in him. And then the Rays traded for him, which made me feel good. But now he's actually producing. So um, so far, it doesn't look like a miss for the Rays. Looks like another hit in the the minor trade department. Chase Peterson's a guy we've talked a lot about on this show probably a handful of times now this season. Eligible at first, second, third, and in the outfield. And basically, anytime the Brewers are missing anybody, he plays, at least if they're facing a right-handed starter, stealing a lot of bases too. So I just think he's a, a perfect bench player to have. Pops up on the wire on a pretty regular basis. Is he doing enough? If someone's out for an entire week, are you picking him up and streaming him in a 12-team league just given the need for speed? Or like, is he still leaving... Is he still leaving something to be desired in formats like that? You know, I, in a week where he could be guaranteed playing time, I don't think that that's a bad move at all. I think if you're in a league where, uh, like a lot of people, you've missed out on John Birdie, then Peterson's kind of the light version of that with maybe less secure playing time over the long term. So I think in a 12-teamer, there'd be nothing wrong with uh, streaming Jace Peterson. Yeah, and I think just to throw the name out there too if birdie is still out there and you're in a eight team league or a 10 team league he's running so much right now that you i think you you have to add him uh only cruz probably the most discussed player on baseball podcasts as a whole over the past week also worth picking up in those shallow leagues where available i think we're basically glazing over him here because both of those guys are, are so heavily rostered i think O'Neill cruz was up around 80 percent rostered already in yahoo leagues and i know yahoo leagues tend to skew much more to the small side. So, um, you know, waxing poetic about the uh, amazing feats of O'Neill Cruz didn't seem like something we needed to really do on this podcast. So if you play in a league where those guys are out there, Birdie and Cruz, they're firmly at the top of the list in terms of players that we are interested in for this week. But yeah, Peterson has just played a lot more than I expected because of the injuries the Brewers have been dealing with on the infield. Uh, Colton Wong eventually comes back and that puts... Uh, Luis Urias back at third base, and then Peterson kind of goes back into his utility role again soon. So just be mindful of that, too, if you're thinking about picking up Chase Peterson. It's been kind of a, a rough stretch for catchers until recently. Cal Raleigh having a great June so far, Al. I think we mentioned him maybe as a deep two-catcher league guy a month or so ago, and he's actually come through. He has, and I think graduated into the one catcher league uh, discussion because he's brought that strikeout rate way down. And anytime that I've needed to fill a space at catcher and I've looked at Raleigh, I think, oh, well, there's really a lot of power there. But oh my gosh, he's you know striking out like 35% of the time. Uh, so taking that last uh, check-in with him and seeing how much he's brought the strikeout rate down, just under 24% for the month of June uh, and translating into a 230 batting average, which again, a catcher, when you can get somebody with the power that Raleigh has shown and give you a 230 average, that that does put him, I think, in the discussion of, you know, top 12 to 15 catcher right now. Uh, so, you know, if you do the math uh, in a 12 to 15 team one catcher league, I think he's viable. Yeah, I think there's a chance he's just the answer behind the plate in Seattle. He's started 15 of the last 20 games. So it's a 75% share of starts. That's a, a lot of volume. Power looks good in terms of the underlying numbers as well. I mean, we talked about Paredes having a surprising amount of homers and a relatively small number of plate appearances. Cal Raleigh has nine homers and 145 plate appearances this year. It's backed up by a 13.3% barrel rate. So he's making a lot of hard contact. That's what you're looking for, right? When you're going to take on that little bit of batting average risk, the swing and miss so far this year, less than it was a season ago, 35.1% K rate last year when Raleigh debuted with the Mariners, down at 31% now, and he's drawing more walks than ever before. So a lot of encouraging signs in this profile. And I would agree that he has played his way into the conversation to be an upgrade for people that have just been looking for answers all season long in their single catcher leagues. I want to put Eric Haas in this conversation as a catcher-eligible player who's also started to hit a lot more recently. His first, really his first two months were pretty underwhelming. I've only got him in one league, a two-catcher AL-only league, so I waited it out because there was nothing better available. And I'm wondering, is he now playing himself back into consideration for 15-team mixed leagues that use two catchers with the, the power he's showing in recent weeks? Oh, there's no question, because when you're talking about a 30-catcher league, it drops off the... Uh... Pretty pretty quickly. So uh, 
given what Haas is doing and given what we saw him do a year ago, uh, it absolutely makes him somebody that, that really not only can be rostered, but absolutely has to be rostered in that type of league. Let's get to some outfielders uh, for deeper leagues. Taylor Trammell getting a lot of opportunities in Seattle as well. One of those guys that I think does everything pretty well from a skill set perspective. And sometimes prospects like this get a little overlooked. They don't have plus power. They don't have plus speed. But good plate skills, some power, some speed, and a pretty regular opportunity to play. They sit him against some lefties. But you go back to, uh, I think his last time he was healthy, came off the IL or got promoted back on May 22nd. Taylor Trammell's had five days off since May 22nd. I mean, that's a pretty much everyday player. He's stuck in the bottom half of the lineup, but beginning to move up a bit, just like Cal Raleigh is. Uh, so in what types of leagues are you interested in Taylor Trammell right now? I would, I mean, definitely 14, 15 team leagues. He is barely rostered. So I think that he is right now one of the truly most under rostered players out there, given what he's done. He's got a 268, 361, 521 slash line with that, as you say, close to regular playing time, not even sitting against every le- uh, lefty, starting against every righty that's out there. If nothing else, there's a pretty good streaming opportunity because the Mariners have a very favorable seven-game schedule this week that as of right now features only one projected left-hander, and that's Jared Koenig. So you put that all together, the power he's showing, moving up the batting order, uh, a righty-heavy week with not a lot of really tough opposition. I, I think on the margins, maybe you're talking about five outfielder, 12-teamers, but there's there's lots of room for him to be added, you know, even in deeper leagues right now. Similar to some of the things we were saying with Raleigh, it's just like looking at the small sample and, and being encouraged by some of the movement with the underlying numbers as well. Taylor Trammell swinging fewer pitches outside the zone this year than he did a season ago, barreling the ball more consistently. The overall hard hit rate is down slightly, so I think that's one of those things where you look at it and say, maybe we're not going to get a double-digit barrel rate going forward, but there's some improvement in there. And as we mentioned, a little bit of speed, got a couple of steals as well. So it just seems like a player that's doing a lot of things right. Also hitting the ball in the air more often than he ever has before. So a lot of adjustments have been made and still pretty young as a 24-year-old really getting a extended opportunity for the Mariners right now. Uh, Jonathan Daza made the rundown today. What do you like about Daza, Al? I like that he's a Rocky. I like that he's hitting first or second in their batting order and uh, that he's hitting 319 and that he's available pretty much in almost all mixed leagues. <laughs> That's what I like there. So uh, not that I'm looking at Daza in, in 12 teamers, but you need batting average. You need runs scored. Um, he's out there and really not getting, uh, I think, nearly enough attention. Yeah, they're home all week with the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks visiting Coors Field. So I think you could stream him just given that uh, it's back-to-back home series for weekly formats for Daza. But I think that's pretty much the list of things I like about him, too. There's some limitations there, but he might be a nice short-term filler if you're dealing with some injuries with that last outfield spot. Elleris Montero also up now for the Rockies. Really interesting player. The best position player that they got back as part of of the deal it sent Nolan Arenado to the Rockies, was putting up good numbers in the Pacific Coast League, wasn't striking out a lot, was showing plenty of power. There are some questions about how good his hit tool actually is, and we'll see against big league pitching what happens. In the very limited time he's been up, the K rate is up, but you can't look at that and, and draw any sort of meaningful conclusions. So third base has been a little bit of a relative wasteland this season on the wire. I'm just curious if there's any mixed leagues where you're thinking about Montero this weekend. I think not just because I don't, I'm not really encouraged about the playing time for Montero. Uh, you know, so far, uh, he's been up for, uh, let's see, they played five games now with Montero up. He has started exactly once. So uh, until we see even semi regular playing time, I think he is strictly NL only. NL only and any sort of like deep keeper dynasty league where he wasn't yeah. already stashed as a prospect, because I do think if, the Rockies were to trade CJ Crone might be difficult. Still got another year left on his deal, even though he's playing really well. Just people don't trade for old first baseman usually. Playing time could open up there. If Charlie Blackman gets traded, that could open up a large share of playing time. There's a few ways it could work out in the second half for Montero, but I think you're you're dead on. There's just not enough playing time there for mixed league considerations. Uh, we also see Lennon Sosa getting a chance right now with the White Sox. Yohan Mankata back on the injured list. I don't think Sosa is sticking on this roster for good. He's another player that came up on the Athletic Baseball show. 
took a really big step forward at double A this season. But I wonder if this is going to be a little bit like the Leover Piguero situation where it's up for the weekend and then down before the week even begins. I suspect that that is what the situation is going to be for Sosa. But I think we could say for him what we just said for Montero. If he is still out there in your dynasty leagues, then he definitely needs to be picked up. And the fact that the White Sox saw fit to to give him some time uh, at the major league level definitely, I think, should give you a, a little bit of a greater sense of urgency to pick him up in dynasty leagues. But outside of AL only, I don't really see much appeal here. And maybe even AL only, there's probably better options. Let's shift the focus over to some pitchers. I will make yet another case for Dean Kramer, which is going to be part of a broader case. And we've pushed on this a little bit before. Orioles pitchers, A, are more skilled than you remember. They've be, they have a better group of pitchers now than they did last year. It's part of being in a rebuild. It's part of trading for some guys. part of having some player development things going right. It's a little bit of all those things. And the ballpark is not the same as it was. We talked a lot about that during draft season and the impact that was going to have, especially on right-handed power hitters. It impacts all hitters in the ballpark. It also helps all the pitchers in that ballpark. So part of my, I think Dean Kramer is actually kind of good, is also a, I feel better about Orioles pitchers as a group than I have probably at any point in at least the last five years. Yeah. Probably a low bar, but uh, I included two of them in this week's waiver column, and Kramer was one of them. And I did that after really having a lukewarm reaction the last time that you brought him up on this show, DVR. And uh, I don't know if it's been both of these starts since that last discussion, but he's uh, now had two starts in a row where he has not given up a run, 11 and two-thirds scoreless innings combined. And in both of those starts, good whiff rates, very good chase rates. And over the course of uh, his start so far, he has given up one barrel, one barrel, mm-hmm. 66 batted balls allowed. I mean, that is phenomenal. So you figure even if you aren't expecting Kramer to be a consistent strikeout pitcher, I mean, that that's a large enough sample now where he's, you know, he's not going to have a one or 2% barrel rate most likely over the longer term, but that's so extremely good that clearly there's, there's some kind of skill here in play. Yeah, it's, I like the pitch mix. It's a four-seamer cutter changeup and curveball. Would like to see a few more curveballs, but I like the fact that he's got two pretty different fastballs, and there's a big difference in that four-seamer and the cutter, of course, about a five-plus mile-per-hour velocity difference. The changeup's a couple ticks off the cutter. It's about 10 miles per hour off the four-seamer. There's enough there to get excited about Kramer. So consider him for deeper leagues. Watch the schedule very carefully with it being the AL East. But there's an upcoming stretch of schedule. There's a few spots. Dean Kramer's got uh, Seattle on the road coming up this week. Not a two-start week. It is a two-start week for Tyler Wells, who we'll talk about in just a minute. And then Kramer will have a two-start week next week if the schedule holds both at home, one against Texas that I really like, and one against an increasingly top-heavy Angels lineup. You know, you look at the Angels and you say... Trout's healthy right now, and Otani's healthy right now, and Taylor Ward looks kind of legit. Rendon's hurt, and a lot of the backups they're playing right now are very fringy in terms of their overall big league production. So I think at the beginning of the season, I was definitely a little more worried about matchups with the Angels than I am right now. So we're at the point in the year, especially in competitive leagues, if you're trying to get two-start pitchers, sometimes you have to be a week early. Even better if you can be a week early and actually use that pitcher as a streamer for the one-start week that comes before the two-start week. I think it's exactly the case with Dean Kramer. Uh, if you're looking at Tyler Wells, he does have the two starts. He's been on and off rosters already, pretty consistently rostered now in most 15-team leagues. But are you starting to push Taylor or Tyler Wells into the conversation as a more shallow league two-start target? I am. And in the waiver column, I did include a bidding recommendation for 12-team leagues. Now, this is more of a streaming consideration uh, because, as you mentioned, that uh, he does have the two-start week. He's got the the start in Seattle, just like Kramer has, and then uh, lines up for a Sunday start against the Twins, which is, that's a tough matchup. But I think Wells is up to it. I, I think it's it's a good enough two-step for him that I would consider him in 12-team leagues, especially since there's really a major dearth of two-start options this week. So he's one of my favorites that that's potentially available in 12-teamers. And I'm sure I've mentioned this probably every time we've talked about Tyler Wells, 
but uh, he leads the major leagues. Um, I think it's a minimum of uh, 50 flies and pop-ups combined leads in terms of average launch angle. So there's just a lot of easy outs. He is one low Babbitt, low Babbitt pitcher that you can actually believe in the low Babbitt and the low whip and the low ERA. Yeah, I, I really like what we're seeing so far from Wells. I think there are some leagues I'm still kicking myself from the beginning of the season. I was drafting him as a hopeful source of saves, kind of an end game target, thinking we don't know what's going to happen with Jorge Lopez and Tanner Scott and some of the other guys they had at the time. They obviously traded a couple relievers, Scott being one of them, and Lopez has been great in the role. But when Wells was going to be stretched out as a starter, I didn't have enough confidence in him being good enough, especially with these matchups. I was wrong. He's very much uh, in consideration for shallow leagues, especially in a two-start week. Graham Ashcraft is pretty interesting. He's sitting on a 327 ERA and a 109 whip through 41 and a third inning so far this season. The K rate so far has been a tick low, but it's a 27 to 7 strikeout to walk ratio so far. So I'll, I'll take it. I'll take a lower K rate if you're going to give me elite control like that. Last time out against the Giants, eight innings with eight Ks. Really good outing for him. If the schedule holds, and it should, at Wrigley against the Cubs' matchup this week, I have no reservations about streaming Ashcraft in that spot. I think the the bigger question is, if you pick him up where he's still available, is he going to stick in the rotation once Nick Lodolo comes back? Could he displace Mike Miner from his rotation spot? Uh, the schedule beyond this week is really a bit of an unknown, just given the unknown the timetable for Lodolo to actually rejoin the Reds' rotation. I think there's going to be a spot for Ashcraft. Maybe it's interrupted at some point in July, but that trade deadline's coming up. Uh, you could see Luis Castillo going elsewhere. I think there's going to be some spot for him over the last couple of months and and probably for at least some portion of July as well. Ashcraft is not somebody I think I could see myself starting frequently in 12-teamers. I think he's put himself into the streamer conversation. And the one thing is that he just gets a lot of ground balls. Um, in addition to that good uh, strikeout to walk ratio. So that's very important in the park that he pitches in. So uh, he's maybe a little bit less venue dependent than uh, than some other pitchers. Let's talk about Josh Winkowski for a moment. He's come up on at least one of these shows and one of our prospect pods in recent weeks, getting that extra opportunity for the Red Sox currently penciled in to face the Cubs at Wrigley late next week, which is a matchup that I am increasingly interested in picking on. And I think Winkowski is just kind of good. I I like what he's doing. He's got plenty of velo on his four-seamer. Another guy that has two different fastballs, he goes four-seamer sinker, has a slider that he throws a lot, a changeup that he mixes in as well. I'm at least in as a streamer, even if we have some questions about how Winkowski fits in long-term to the Red Sox 2022 rotation plans. Yeah, I think that uh, Winkowski is a good streamer in deeper mixed leagues as long as you just do go in with the recognition that that's probably uh, the the ceiling for him. I don't see a longer-term role for him in this rotation. I know you and I, DVR, even before he got called up, we had questions about we like the skills, but what where is there a room for him? So uh, that that was presented with the uh, Nidvaldi injury, but longer-term, uh, I, I would not count on him getting uh, much time in the majors. We did say there's not a lot of two-start pitchers out there. There is one in particular that's still reasonably available. That's Jonathan Heasley. I know it's tough to talk yourself into buying into Royals pitchers in general, given the number of times we've been disappointed by their players uh, kind of finishing up their development at the big league level. But home against the Rangers and road against the Tigers, it doesn't get much better than that as far as your you know, two matchups in the AL in one week. Yeah, the Rangers actually have been hitting decently lately, so I wouldn't necessarily take that one for granted. Uh, For Heasley, there had to be something a little bit more there than just looking at those two matchups. And he has been better of late. I mean, if you just look at the season to date numbers, neither the strikeout nor the walk rate is uh, very impressive, actually a little scary, but it's definitely trending in the right direction. So that for me is enough not in 12-teamers, but really anything deeper, like 14-team and, and uh, deeper than that. Uh, I would roll with Heasley, especially with that Tigers matchup at the end of the week. Yeah, definitely fits in 15-team leagues for the upcoming week, maybe even viable in some 12s with those matchups. You look a little further down the road, a uh, matchup 
home against Cleveland the following week. Maybe a little more borderline for Heasley, but could easily stick in this rotation given the issues the Royals have had finding consistent quality pitching. Jose Quintana, frequently mentioned on this show, two-start pitcher this week at Washington, home against the Brewers. Finally, I think, rostered in a lot of 15-team leagues, reluctantly in most of those cases, but he's delivering so far. I mean, I think this is maybe the the NL equivalent of Martin Perez, where everyone looks at it and keeps waiting for the wheels to fall off. And relatively speaking, Quintana has normal ratios, whereas Martin Perez still has ace ratios that don't make any sense. But uh, should people in, in more shallow leagues be interested in Quintana when volume comes up? Because there's been a surprisingly high number of strikeouts so far this season, 61 Ks in 70 innings over 14 starts. A little more volume than efficiency in that regard, but it's working so far. Yeah, well, and because, yeah, there's um, not a lot of efficiency that uh, you really need a two-start week for for Quintana to be uh, to, to be viable. And, and I don't really like him for 12-teamers. I mean, pretty much everybody that we've mentioned so far, to me, would be preferable to Quintana. These matchups are not that great. I've kind of gotten used to thinking of the Nationals as a really good matchup, but sort of like the Rangers, they've, they've been a little sneaky lately that that lineup has improved. Uh, so they're not necessarily going to be uh, a, an automatically good start for Quintana. And then the Brewers who have been sort of middle of the pack. So he's more of like a 15 team last resort option for me. I think the, maybe the most interesting pitcher that is on a lot of waiver wires right now is a guy who's going to pitch on Saturday. So by the time you hear this podcast, there's a chance he will have made another big league start. That's Mitch White. And as a result of Andrew Heaney going back on the 15-day IL with a shoulder injury, Mitch White goes back into the Dodgers rotation. Uh, he's made a couple of starts at AAA, Oklahoma City, 11 and two-thirds scoreless innings there. He's got a 27 to 8 strikeout to walk ratio in mixed duty so far with the Dodgers this season. I think it's going to take a reasonably large bid, not a massive, you know, triple digit sort of thing, but I think it's taking like five to 7% to go take a chance on Mitch White in a lot of leagues because he's a Dodger and the results are good. There's a little bit of prospect pedigree here as well. Uh, do you agree with my, my optimism and my willingness to spend a little more on, on Mitch White with the hope of getting some longer term value from him in the Dodgers rotation? Well, I think only because if you're looking down the road, I'm not sure if you need pitching who you'd be splurging on at this point. Maybe Brian Bayo. And again, I'm not sure where the, the opportunity is going to be for him. So you might as well because the opportunity is now there for Mitch White and all the things that you said in terms of the, the skill profile, the pedigree. So um, I, maybe earlier, maybe at like a month ago, I would have disagreed with you. But at this point, I think... It's it's worth uh, a little bit of a higher bid than than uh, you would have considered just a few weeks back. Yeah, White uh, dodging some raindrops schedule-wise, not seeing the Rockies at Coors to begin the week. He actually gets to start the first game of the series against the Padres. A home start against the Padres will be his only start of the upcoming week. Looking further down the road, a two-start pitcher the following week. So in leagues where he's not immediately scooped up, it's going to cost you more if you wait and he stays on the wire in some of those shallow leagues. I think there could be some 12-team league value here with Mitch White as well. So definitely one of the more interesting pitchers that you might be able to go get at a reasonable, albeit not cheap, price this weekend. Let's get to some relievers. Another group that's been a bit better in recent weeks than it was for most of April and May. Thursday league, I saw A.J. Puck get scooped up for 5% of a budget. A lot of questions about him maybe just being the future closer of the A's, of course, given what they uh, invested in him as a high draft pick and, and just the stuff that he brings to the table and some of the questions about uh, the quality of their other relievers. You know, Danny Jimenez has an injury that has him on the IL right now. Definitely seems like there's a path for Puck to emerge as the main source of saves for the A's sooner rather than later. I'm not sure how soon, though, because Jimenez should be back pretty soon. Uh, you won't necessarily have a long time on the IL. I would expect that the A's will return him to that closer role, which he had to himself uh, just before he went on, on the IL. Uh, Jimenez was inconsistent, but you know, basically getting the job done. And it's not like he's a player that I think that um, the A's would be looking to trade in the weeks to come. So... 
my, my feeling with Puck is that maybe that, that opportunity comes, maybe it comes this year, maybe it comes next year, but there's just so much churning that goes on in the closer pool that I don't, I, I think it'd be a better idea to spend that money on somebody, for example, like Mitch White, than to say, okay, I, I really need saves and maybe Puck is somebody that I can speculate on. Uh, I just think that there could be somebody that emerges in the closer pool, especially with the trade deadline coming up. Somebody that we're not even thinking about right now and you can save that money or, or you know, use it for somebody who's who's getting a closer role um, that we know for, for certain in the, you know, in the days and weeks to come. So, yeah, I, I don't see myself speculating on Puck. I just want to bring this up because it's part of the Oakland bullpen and I, I didn't draft this player anywhere. I thought he was my least favorite closer entering the season. Lou Trevino has an 835 ERA and a 202 whip. He's a 275 Sierra. Lou Trevino has the highest strikeout rate of his career. His home run rate's not bad. His walk rate's actually a little better than it's been before. And he's getting more swinging strikes this season than he has at any point since 2018. He's been one of the most unlucky relievers in the entire league. And I'm saying that as someone who had him nowhere. Like He deserves a lot better than the results that he's had so far. And I'm I'm trying to think about it from the, the perspective of what team's going to swoop in and acquire Lou Trevino and no one's going to think twice about it and then we're going to get to October and he's going to be the seventh inning guy for the Dodgers, the Astros, some, some team. Some team is going to swoop in and get him and it's going to be a, a non, it's like a totally non-discussed move at the time and yet here we are. Here we are in a key role where Lou Trevino has some team season on his shoulders. Uh, Joe Kelly's out there in some leagues, Al. Liam Hendricks does seem to be progressing well from his forearm injury, so definitely an encouraging sign to see that. But uh, Kelly does have a path to at least some short-term save chances in Hendricks' absence. He does, uh, and I wouldn't totally give up on Kendall Graveman as a save source, but maybe just that they'll, they'll get in each other's way just enough to render you know either one kind of a, a marginal uh, option. Uh, I know we're going to talk about Ken Giles in a little bit, but I think I'd, I'd actually be more interested in either Paul Seawald or Diego Castillo than um, than you know either of those options. So in in, in the White Sox bullpen uh, till till uh, Hendricks gets back. So or for that matter, Tanner Scott, who may still be out there in some leagues. I have an idea, another off script idea. I think. Rosters are ridiculously imbalanced in the bulk of fantasy baseball leagues. I think 14 hitters against nine pitchers is actually kind of silly. I think that should be closer to even. I think it should be maybe even 13 and 13 because then it would actually resemble the structure of big league rosters. And I think what that would do is it would take a lot of these situations where multiple relievers are sharing save opportunities and it would make us consistently interested in those players who have good skills and good ratios Whereas right now, we're still stuck guessing and trying to figure out who we really like, right? Because if you added four active pitching spots to a typical league, those spots are not going to starters. Maybe one, two in some cases, if we're talking like a 12-team league, but in a 15-team league, you're not going two starters deeper most weeks. You're probably going relievers. And at least then, we're creating a scenario where the rosters are balanced, hitter versus pitcher, and we're making these players more valuable who are just stuck on the periphery and, and constantly, you know, we're at the whims of the managers for who gets the save that day. We could eliminate that by just changing that part of the structure. I like it. I had never thought about that, but it does, like you said, not only creates a roster composition that's more realistic, more like what we see with, with major league teams, but it also, it is one way to accommodate the changing uh, bullpen landscape that we've seen over the last few years. Cause I mean, other than, I guess, the, maybe the growth and popularity of saves and holds leagues, that we haven't really adapted to that. that that's a great adaptation. I'm trying. Trying to just make little <laughs> tweaks that, that just make things a little bit easier and, and not easier for us to play, but a little more logical. And plus, 260 spread out over 26 players, $10 per player. We like things that are in tens, you know, 10 fingers, all that. So a lot of, lot of synergy here. Ken Giles back in the fold for the Mariners. You, you brought up this situation, and I, I, this is one of the situations that I look at. I'm like, okay, I think Ken Giles, especially for his career, he's been a very good reliever. Just because he's not getting all the saves doesn't mean he shouldn't be rostered and utilized. 
valuing him in terms of fab, valuing him in terms of when I throw him into a lineup, those things are really difficult to decide when there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to who actually gets those opportunities. Paul Seawold should be rostered everywhere. I think he's yeah. probably 70, 80% rostered in leagues, so it's mostly your, your 10 and maybe a few 12s where he's not at this point. What are you doing with Giles? Do you th- Let me rephrase this. Do you think Giles changes anything about the way the Mariners are managing save opportunities? Because I don't. Like, even though he's got an extensive injury history and a, a great a great run of a few years as an elite closer, I don't think they necessarily care about that. I think they really want to just play the best possible matchups in the late innings, and there's no one reliever that pushes them away from that. No, I, I agree. I, I think it doesn't change their basic philosophy. I think it does mean that he'll be in that saves mix and get them here and there. Probably not enough to register outside of some pretty deep leagues or maybe maybe in the format that you just invented. But um, <laughs> I, he's not going to be anybody that I'm speculating on right now. I do think it's a situation to watch. I think at least in the short term, I think that Seawall and Castillo will get their, will get their saves, but it bears watching. I just imagined an AL or an NL only league that's thirteen and thirteen. Ugh. Oh, wow! That's gonna be, it's gonna be tough to to pull that off with the pitching. Good luck. I mean, you got to know every single pitcher really well if you're gonna wade into that pool. Uh, ultra deep leagues. Mark Appel, great story. Getting an opportunity with the Phillies in their bullpen. They've had a lot of issues in the late innings in recent years. Is there enough of a chance we're in a deep league, maybe an NL only league? Deep Keeper, Deep Dynasty, 20-plus team mixed league. Would you take the chance on Appel being the eventual solution? I don't think it would happen quickly, but do you think there's an actual chance that Mark Appel closes some games out for the Phillies at some point this season? Sure. I think there's a chance. I don't think – I think it'd be part of a committee. All right. So um, this is this is a little more Lloyd Christmas than, than Hollywood script coming to life yeah. right before our eyes. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay, because I'm looking at Appel's numbers in the minors. It wasn't an overwhelming strikeout rate. 21.8% at AAA. Did a really good job limiting the walks. Kept the ball in the ballpark. All that's great. I hope he's up in the big leagues for the rest of the season. I hope he pitches well. I just look at it and think, wow, that, that the last the last chapter of the, the Mark Appel made it could be Mark Appel closer. But we're probably a step or two away from that. Most likely. But it's a cool story no matter what. We saw uh, Daniel Hudson suffer an unfortunate injury Friday night in Atlanta. Uh, he tore his ACL uh, trying to make a play in the field. And I think this is a question I threw at Eno on Rates and Barrels a couple of days ago. If something were to happen to Craig Kimbrell, an injury to him, or if he just goes through a prolonged stretch where he's not pitching well and the Dodgers decide to make a change, Daniel Hudson seemed like the guy, at least to Eno, who was probably most likely to get those saves. Now with Hudson hurt, where do we shift our focus? Is it Bruce Dar Gratterall, or is it someone else entirely that would be your preferred stash out of this group of Dodgers relievers? I, there's nobody that stands out enough to me that I wouldn't be be attempting to to make a stash, other than in a really really deep league. I think Alex Vesia maybe could could be in that mix, but Gratterall makes as much sense as anybody. I want to take a look at one more thing before we go. I want to see some of the more frequently dropped players. We're now far enough into the season where people are making bigger picture decisions, letting guys go that it's been three months, been almost half a season, and they've underperformed in some cases. And more or less, I just want to know if there's anyone who's being dropped right now, who's actually healthy, that we should be actively thinking about picking up for a possible turnaround at some point later on this season. So I'm going to grab the CBS report for recently dropped players. I'm going to run off a few names, and then we'll kind of talk through a few that might be interesting. Uh, Bryson Stott's been a recent drop. Zach Eflin down at under 60% rostered. Corey Knable, we talked about the Phillies bullpen. He's getting close to 50% rostered. I'm not sure why people are dropping Graham Ashcraft. We just talked about him a little while ago. Reed Detmers makes sense. He's back at AAA. Alex Fido. Alex Wood, kind of in some shallow leagues, getting pushed off of rosters. Miles Straw, maybe in some leagues. Uh, Cole Calhoun has dropped a bit in terms of his roster rate. Is there anybody in that group that stands out to you as someone that actually should be held on to or even just picked up in situations where they become available? Uh, well, I can think of one name on that list and one name that wasn't on that list. Uh, the name that that's not on the list that uh, I've been thinking about is Connor Joe. 
Um, because sort of similar to the discussion we had about Jonathan Daza, I think just the fact that he's at or near the top of the Rockies lineup and we've seen some, some nice skills from him in the past. Uh, I think he, he could be worth stashing where he's been dropped, but Alex Wood, uh, I, that's a pitcher that if he's been dropped, even in shallow leagues, I would find a way to stash him. Cause he, I'm sure he got dropped or at least a lot of, uh, managers probably dropped him after getting clobbered by Atlanta. And I benched him for that start. I figured that was going to be a tough start. That's definitely one of the probably three or four matchups that you least want to see your pitchers coming up on. But I feel like he's been under-rostered and underrated all season long, and I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, I will, I have him in a couple leagues and start him more than I don't. Yeah, I mean, the home park is such a, a pitcher-friendly environment overall. That's part of what brings me back to someone like Alex Wood over and over again. The surface numbers look rough because the ERA is over five. The whip's at one three seven right now, but he's right under a strikeout per inning. The K's have been there. Twenty two percent K rate is fine. Walk rate hasn't gone you know anywhere in anywhere in the wrong direction. He's at six point eight percent right in line with last year. Homers haven't been a problem. Projections point to a much better uh, way forward for him. A sub four ERA for most systems. The bat is a little bit more pessimistic. Four thirty one ERA and a one thirty six WHIP would be a much smaller improvement than what Zips and Steamer and the other systems are forecasting for him. In terms of the Eno pitching model, too, I'm looking at those numbers right now. He's at least average across the board. Average in terms of his stuff plus number, above average slightly in terms of his location plus number at 103. Overall number, the pitching plus comes out at 1024. I mean, that that works. There's not any sort of decline in what Alex Wood is bringing to the table that would explain this much of a, a bump in his ERA and his whip. So I, I'm with you. I, I think maybe he's not quite as good as he was a year ago with that 118 whip, but I think you're going to get an ERA under four and probably a whip not far away from what you expected last year from Wood going forward. Yeah, and uh, the Sierra, it's 364, XFIP 344. So when you talk about those kinds of um, peripheral stats that he has, that's that's the sort of pitcher that you imagine, mid-threes ERA. And I think the only reason he's not really matching up with that is the batted, pro, batted ball profile, a 23% line drive rate, not very many pop-ups. I think those will regress. I think rest of the season, uh, definitely a sub-four ERA. And somebody that... Um, Again, I personally will probably stream in more than I'll be streaming out. Trying to make a really long run from the basement up into contention in NL Labor. And since Memorial Day, I think I've made up about half the standings. Like I've, I've gone from dead last to about sixth. And Alex Wood is on that team. So I'm, I'm hoping, that especially in a 12-team NL only league, getting a maybe a three and a half ERA the rest of the way would be huge for uh, chasing some people down in the weeks ahead. But as always, if you've got questions for a future week, you can send them our way on Twitter. Al is at LMelkYourBB. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you'd like to check out Al's weekly waiver wire column, which you should, theathletic.com slash podcast gets you a subscription $1 a month for the first six months. The best deal that we do, it probably won't be around forever, so you should jump on that now if you haven't done that already. The benefit, of course, you'd have fantasy football if you play that too, plus any other sports that you follow that we cover you get access to all of that great content as well. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back with you on Tuesday.